Good evening again, and welcome back, all of those of you whom we haven't seen for a month or so. It's nice to have you back. We started a series on the Gospel of Mark while you were gone. It's been going great. So, um, we're in Mark chapter 1, though. If you have a Bible and want to turn there, or you can follow along. The same text is printed in your bulletin. Uh, this is Martin Luther King weekend, and uh, that's come to mean a time when people... Uh, have their concerns raised to do things that are helpful and constructive in their communities and neighborhoods as a way of commemorating his life and influence. You know, wanting to do something that's good that uh, might affect some positive change. Um, but if you're going to jump into the world to try to affect positive change and have a decent influence on it, um, you really sort of need to set the ground rules of what the game is before you start. Like. What do you think is really wrong with the world, and what do you think would change that? What do you really think is wrong with the world, and what would change it? One of the ones I like, because I'm old, is a Joni Mitchell's song, Woodstock, that Crosby, Stills, and Nash made famous, uh, in which uh, she says, last verse is, uh, we are stardust, we are golden, we are caught in the devil's bargain, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. So I see old people nodding. We are stardust, we are golden, we're caught in the devil's bargain, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. So she's laying out what's wrong with the world and um, what needs to happen to change the world. Uh, first, she sees the beauty in the world. We're stardust. We're golden. This creation and these human beings in it are pretty amazing. Uh, but they're ruined somehow. They're caught in the devil's bargain. Uh, this uh, somehow uh, almost feels like genetic level corruption affects all of us. And we're a mess. And the world that we touch becomes a mess as well. And we've got to get ourselves back to the Garden of Eden. Basically, she says, the devil's bargain kind of raises hints of Eden, too. Uh, we've got to get ourselves back to the way things were meant to be, the way things were created to be. So when we read in Mark about Jesus, Jesus' invasion of the world to come fix it, you know, does this resonate very much with Joni Mitchell's idea of, of what's wrong with the world and how to fix it? That's pretty well, uh, for the most part. Stardust, golden, Jesus sees his creation as good, a beautiful thing that he's made, human beings in the image of God are delightful, uh, worth rescuing, but they need to be rescued. They're caught in the devil's bargain. That resonates too with uh, the story of the Bible. Right? It's our rebellion, tempted by the devil in Eden and ever since, that we choose to be autonomous and run our own lives instead of submitting to God. And that's what's broken the world. That's what's wrong. That's what needs to be redressed when we go out to try to do anything to help. Right? The world is broken, caught in the devil's bargain. And the goal of getting back to the garden, that's also uh, pretty resonant with what Jesus said he came to fix and do. Getting back to the garden, which is very different than the idea of escaping from the broken world as uh, you see, is sort of the goal of spiritual enlightenment in the East is to see the world as illusory and to deny desire and detach yourself increasingly from it. Um, that's a different goal of what needs to be fixed. 
the Platonist in the West uh, say that the physical world is dirty, but the spirit is good, and escaping from the prison house of the body is the way forward for us uh, as human beings. That's what needs to be fixed, is we need to escape the body. And there are versions of the Christian faith that sound a lot like that sometimes. We need to leave this old world behind and get to heaven, which doesn't really describe very well what Jesus says. The idea of getting back to the garden is a lot closer. Like what God originally created us to be and the world he created us to live in uh, isn't to be abandoned, but is to be redeemed and fixed and repaired for us and us repaired in it, our relationship with God and with each other. Back to the garden. So there's a lot of resonance. Joni Mitchell's doing pretty well so far on her uh, What's Wrong with the World Biblically Test. We've got to get ourselves back to the garden? Eh, not so much. <laughs> right? uh, because the devil's bargain is a lot deeper than something we can fix ourselves. Right? We're not able to get ourselves back to the garden, no matter how well we educate ourselves, no matter how good our technology gets, no matter how well we cooperate with each other to do it, uh, we can't get ourselves back to the garden. Uh, Jesus Christ came to fix what's wrong with the world, us and the damage that we've done in it. And uh, his estimation of what's wrong with us is reflected in what he says he came to do. And right here at the beginning of Mark, uh, we see a description of what his mission in the world is, what he came to do for us, what we needed for him to do for us. And that's what we're going to think about together. Sorry for that long intro, but uh, let me pray for us and then we'll read the scripture. Father, please uh, help us. Uh, for those of us new to Christianity, pray that you would uh, open eyes so that we might understand well and easily. Uh, for those familiar, I pray that where we have uh, notions entrenched in our minds that need to be challenged, that you would uh, come and challenge them. And mostly for all of us, I pray you'd open our hearts to you, that we might feel and see our need of you, and that we might be able to embrace Jesus Christ uh, with all he's come to be for us. We ask in his name. Amen. Beginning at verse 14, then, in Mark chapter 1. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, o Christ. I always get a little distracted with that passage about the fishermen. Like, how come John and James had a guide and Peter didn't in his fishing business? They had servants. So that's just cheating, I think. Sorry, that's an, that is an aside. The, uh, the creeds that we confess, uh, the Apostles' Creed usually, you know, after the sermon, before communion, when it talks about Jesus, there's a strange parenthesis that you come across. Uh, because it talks about who Jesus is. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's Son, our Savior. He's, uh, he was born of the Virgin Mary. 
And what comes next? Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Which is an interesting gap of uh, 33 years, apparently. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Why doesn't it say anything else in the middle there about all of Jesus' life and teaching and ministry? I'm not criticizing the creed. I'm just noticing this and um, noticing that sometimes it's easy for us to think about the Christian faith sort of outside the categories of these four Gospels that are written about Jesus' life and ministry as well as his uh, death on our behalf. Um, All that he came to say and do in his public life uh, sort of gets passed over pretty quickly in the Creed and sometimes I think in the way that we think about faith. I mean, why doesn't the Gospel start this way? It says, Jesus was born of Mary... Then he was arrested and died for our sins on the cross. You should believe in him. And isn't that the kernel of the message? Isn't that uh, what he came to do? To die on the cross for our sins so that we could be made right with God? Yes, sometimes when we try to summarize the Christian message, we'll often say it in those terms. Um, but what's the point then of his life? What's the point of those intervening years, the the 33 years, and especially the three years of his public ministry to get all the attention in these Gospels? Uh, What's going on there? Why didn't he just come quickly, go to Jerusalem and die, and accomplish his mission that way? Um, On the other hand, you may, uh, if you come at the faith from kind of more the progressive side of things, you might say, um, why did the Gospels spend all that much time talking about Jesus' death? Like the whole second half of the book of Mark talks about his, the last week of his life, his trial and his death. Um, didn't he just come to be a teacher of uh, peace, love, and understanding? And that's the real point of what he did. Why spend all of this time focusing on this last odd week of his life and the strange trial and death? Uh, why do that? So it's um, the reason that you have all of this other material about Jesus' life and ministry and teaching is because there's more to the story. There's not less to the story than that Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins so that we may be right with God. That is certainly true. Uh, but it's a fuller, richer story than that uh, for us to understand and believe. And you see that when you see what he did when he started his ministry. Um, what he actually said when he started preaching. It says he came... from into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God, the announcement from God of good news. Uh, What's that announcement? He didn't say immediately, um, I'm here to die on the cross for your sins so that you might be forgiven and made right with God. True as that is, true as that is going to be, as central as that is to the purpose of his coming. Now what he says, this is what he said. The quote in verse 15 is, the time is fulfilled... The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Now, if someone asks you, what is the gospel of Jesus? What's the good news of Jesus Christ? Would you start with, well, the time is at hand. (laughs) I wouldn't ever think to say it, right? I wouldn't ever think to say that. Um, The kingdom of God is at hand. I probably wouldn't say that because I think that requires too much explaining. You know, Um, and then repent and believe in the gospel. I would say that, but it would be very hard for me to say 
that like Jesus did at this point, because he's saying believe the gospel before people know about his death and resurrection on their behalf. Interestingly, to me. So um, let's unpack this a little bit. Try to see what is this message that he has and, and how it matters for us. First thing he says is the time is fulfilled. What time is fulfilled? Like we read in Galatians, um, passage in Galatians 4, it says, In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. The fullness of time, what is that about? Um, it's not the easiest question in the world, is it? What it really is saying is, um, remember the prequel <laughs> to Jesus' life and ministry, the Old Testament, right? It's a, very, it's a very detailed prequel to Jesus' life, and his life is hard to explain apart from it. You know, uh, uh, Baum wrote The Wonderful Wizard of Oz and several other books about Oz and the wizard, but never wrote a prequel to it. And then uh, Gregory McGuire, I think is his name, uh, recently wrote a prequel to The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, right? Which is Wicked, that's coming here next month to Centennial. Uh, Wicked tells the story of the Wicked Witch of the West and how she got to be such, and all the backstory with uh, uh, her life leading up to the time she met Dorothy. And so, if you've seen Wicked, the Wizard of Oz story uh, always has a fuller tone to it when you never really hear it just the same again uh, because you've got that backstory in your mind. And if you're going to understand what Jesus is doing, you need the prequel of the Old Testament to really understand what's going on because this is... Uh, all the momentum of the Old Testament story is, is culminating on Jesus. And when he says the time is at hand, he means the time promised for, Jesus, for God to send the true king into the world is at hand. The day of the Lord, as uh, the prophets used to say. The passage we read in the Old Testament. And I know this is a lot of content, but it matters, so hang with me. The uh, 2 Samuel 7 that we read was uh, when David wanted to build a temple for God. And God said, you can't because uh, you have too much blood on your hands, which was an interesting, um, interesting qualification, I think. He said, no, you can't build my house. Uh, your son will. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build you a house in the dynasty sense. I'm going to build the house of David as an eternal kingdom. And it's going to be your son, Solomon. But he kept saying things that weren't, obviously, things Solomon wasn't able to do, like, your dynasty is going to extend forever. Uh, there's going to be a king that comes from you that will reign in justice and peace forever. And when is that time coming? When is the great David's greater son going to show up in the world? Well, we're waiting. And the prophets talk about that. And they have prophets like we studied Daniel this fall. And Daniel in his prophecy says, look, there are going to be pagan empires that come up in the world um, that try to rule and rule for a time and seem very powerful, but they're all going to be temporary. And ultimately something new is going to happen. The real king of the world is going to show up, the rightful king, and he's going to stop the usurpers and insert himself as the rightful king of the world and bring shalom to the world and peace and justice finally to us when he comes. And the prophets would give you numbers and things that will baffle you if you try to figure them out. But, you know, um, you know, it's not just seven times, but 77 weeks until this happens. You know, and around the time of Jesus, people were doing the math and trying to figure it out, you know, like they do on YouTube now. And, you know, but the, the idea was that when is the time coming, right? When is this all going to happen? And 
Jesus came saying, now is when it's going to happen. I'm here. The time is fulfilled now because I'm here. Which is a very dramatic thing to say to a Jewish audience. It doesn't, ring, it doesn't resonate as hard with us. But what it does mean is that God's in control of, of history as, as random and evil as it seems. That history actually has a trajectory. It's not just some a cyclical idea, just one thing after another, not just randomness. But history has a trajectory. So when Martin Luther King famously said that he believed that the arc of history, though it's very long, bends towards justice, he's talking as a Christian. Because he's saying, I believe history has a trajectory that bends towards justice. What evidence do you have for that other than the promises of God and the experience of knowing Jesus Christ? All right, so we believe that history has a trajectory. Um, and what's wrong with the world is being fixed by Jesus in his time. So the time is fulfilled. What you've been waiting for, Jewish people, is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. The second thing he says. The kingdom of God is at hand, which basically says the kingdom is here because I'm here. Right? I'm the king. I'm here. I'm the one you've anticipated. I'm David's offspring, the greater David, the eternal king, the one whose kingdom will be forever. Yeah, that's me, human being. God himself in human form, here the kingdom is at hand. I'm here. I've come to fix the world. I've come to reassert myself as the rightful king of the world and to stop the usurpers and set the world back to rights. The kingdom is here. That's what I've come to do. All of the longings you've had to see oppression end, all your frustration trying to push back against injustice and uh, oppression, bigotry, um, tyranny, uh, your own brokenness and inability to control yourself, all these things that you've longed to see change are going to change now because I'm here. Things that couldn't be fixed, the depth of the devil's bargain that you've been in, I'm here, I can get you back to the garden. Trust me, follow me. That's what he says when he says the kingdom is at hand. And then he goes and starts to show it. He does these miracles that aren't just gee whiz uh, moments in the world. They're pretty gee whiz. But he does his miracles for a reason. He does his miracles to say, look, this person is sick. And in my kingdom, that's not okay. And so I'm healing them. It's like an intrusion of the future. In my kingdom, when it's fully established, people won't be sick. They won't be blind. They won't be lame. right? They won't be oppressed. Uh, they won't be ground down by disease and decay. That is not okay in my kingdom. Power will not be used to oppress and abuse in my kingdom. And so he goes to teach and to show through his life and miracles what the way things are supposed to be and the way that they're going to be. When his kingdom is fully here. Alright. Um, so he told us to pray for this to happen. He said pray. When you pray. Your kingdom come. And your will be done on earth. As it is in heaven. And that's the result. Of God's kingdom fully coming. As things on earth will be like things in heaven. Will be rightly related to God. And all the collateral damage of our war. Of independence against God. Uh, will be fixed. Finally. And things will be the way that they're supposed to be. So basically, when he says the kingdom is at hand, he's saying, look, it's the end of the world as you know it. Right. The whole world, as you've always known and experienced it, is ending. And the new world is beginning because I'm here. The new world is beginning. The problem for us is 
that the old world, the world as we've known it, normal life, as we try to all run our own lives and ruin the world, uh, is a timeline from the, from the Garden of Eden, ongoing now, but going to end when Jesus returns. The new world starts when Jesus appears on the scene and goes forward into eternity. But we live in this overlapping time where you know, the, the Venn diagram overlaps, where the old world is still going, but the new world of Jesus' kingdom has already started. But it's not fully here yet. Right? And it's weird because uh, it's very hard to keep a balance in your mind of your expectations about life. You know, about how, how much is already healed now and how much isn't going to be healed yet in my lifetime. And some amazing things get healed now and some amazing things don't get healed now. And it's a weird time to live. And Christians tend to sort of wobble on it, you know, kind of left and right. Well, some will say, well, kingdom's not here yet, hardly at all. <laughs> you know, I kind of lean this way. Um, most of everything good we expect to happen because of Jesus' work is in the future. You know, we get, we get forgiven now, and that's nice. It really is. But I'm not really expecting much else to happen in the world. You know, um, I'm not going to get real torqued up about global warming because, you know, Jesus is going to come back, and this world's a sinking ship, and it's probably not worth the trouble to worry about it. Um, I appreciate Martin Luther King doing what he did, but I'm not going to get all that revved up about pursuing justice in the world for those who are oppressed because... Uh, you know, I don't really expect much to change now anyway because the kingdom is so future. Uh, not much has happened yet. And then other Christians kind of lean the other way and they think, oh yeah, the kingdom's new, uh, mostly all here now, already. You know, what we've got already. And usually, uh, that tends to be the more progressive side of the church that says, well, what we have is Jesus told us the right way to think and live and if we just go tell everybody else the right way to think and live, and they do it like us, then the world will pretty much work the way it's supposed to, and things will be fixed. If we can just all, you know, cooperate and, and teach what we need to teach, then everything will be well and good. We can bring the kingdom now. That kind of idea. And we wobble back and forth. You know, the conservatives think, you, you, you progressives are too interested in social justice. And the, the progressives are like, why don't you even care about social justice when Jesus cared so much, obviously? And, and we talk past each other. And, but it's hard to live here. It's hard to live in this already, not yet. The kingdom's already here, but the kingdom's not yet here. And that's where we're called to live. Right? Um, but the reality is it's not going to be finished until Jesus comes back to complete his work. Right? Death is not going to be over until then. He said that's the final enemy to be defeated, is death. And so we wait and he says the reaction now to this news is what? Repent and believe the good news. Right? Repent and believe the good news. What good news? What, do you, what is he saying you should believe? Um, is he saying repent and believe that I'm going to die on the cross for you, uh, for your sins, so that you can be forgiven and reconciled to God? Well, he never said that in any of his recorded sermons up until closer to the time when he was going to die, right? And when he started saying that, everybody was like, what? No, you're not. That's crazy. You know? um, so what was he saying? What are they supposed to believe, believe the gospel? What are they supposed to believe before they knew about the cross? They're supposed to believe that the true king of the world is here. 
Right? The hope of Israel has come. That Jesus is him. Really, he's the Jewish Messiah is Jesus. And they're supposed to switch allegiances from their other trust and life and give their allegiance to him. Now, follow him. There's a, there's a crazy passage in uh, Josephus' history of the Jewish wars in the uh, 60s, as I'm sure you all know. Um, it's, he, was a, he was a Jew. He fought uh, in the Jewish wars, and then he went over to the Roman side in the war, you know, uh, back in the winter. And uh, so they, they let him have a pension to write the history of the war afterwards. But at one point in the war, he says he went and confronted another Jewish man uh, who he felt like was uh, causing trouble and making things worse. And he said, I went to him and I told him, repent and believe in me. That was the quote. Repent and believe in me. And he wasn't saying, you need, you know, you need to come to Jesus. <laughs> that wasn't what he was saying. Josephus wasn't a Christian. He was saying, um, you need to abandon your present loyalty and come my way. I know a better way to approach what's wrong here. You need to abandon what you're doing and come follow me. Use the same language Jesus used here, announcing his kingship. I'm here as God's king, the rightful king, who's going to set the rules to right and reconcile you to God. Uh, put your trust in me. Turn away from your other trusts. Which is not what we tell people when they ask how to become a Christian, is it? Sort of. Uh, but there's more to say, at least, than if you put your trust in Jesus who died on the cross for you for your sins, you get to go to heaven after you die. True as that is. But our hope is bigger than that. It's more than going to heaven when you die. It's living in the new creation. Uh, when Jesus remakes the world and gives us our resurrected bodies and we live together in peace and our brains work and the environment's not a threat to us and we're right with God and face-to-face with Him like the Garden of Eden. There's more to one and that's what Jesus came to bring. So, uh, Jesus teaches ethics with this when He says repent. Of course, He means your personal behavior. You know, you turn away from your autonomy, rebellion against Him. But his ethics are always framed by this. Look, the new world's coming. You're going to be a new person. I want you to live like that already. Live into who you're going to be. That's how Jesus' ethics seem to work, right? That's how the apostles taught about ethics. Look, put off who you used to be and put on who you're going to be. The old person and the new person. And this is what Jesus came to teach. It's sort of this repenting and following him. It's kind of like when Eustace had his dragon skin cut off of him by Aslam and the Dawn Treader. Remember the story where he couldn't fix himself because of his dragonishness, but Aslan took his claw and cleaned him, and then he was able to turn away from his autonomy and rebellion and to thrive in a new relationship with Aslan. And it's what Jesus is calling his people to do. Come follow me. Turn and follow me. So, And then he tells them, not only are you going to follow me, you're also going to be on my mission. And so he calls these people to be a part of proclaiming the good news that the king is here. Right? So he calls uh, these four first disciples that are going to be the core of the twelve that come along. Um, tells them to leave their jobs and come follow him. He doesn't tell most of us to leave our jobs when he calls us to follow him. And the reason is, uh, not that uh, ministers are super special. The reason is Jesus is redeeming the whole world. And so he's scattered his people all over the world. 
in all sorts of different fields and jobs and neighborhoods and endeavors and businesses uh, to represent his interests there, to push back against what's broken in the cursed world and to embody the healing that Jesus is bringing into the world. So he wants you, uh, in all of your lowly sin jobs, to be doing that rather than for you all to quit and become missionaries. Right? You know, we need some missionaries. We need some preachers. But mostly, we need people who will follow Jesus in their callings in the world, places that he puts them. Uh, but we are all given the same kind of priority when we get called. They had to leave their family and their jobs. And we all have to say, priority-wise, my family's not as important as my relationship with Jesus and my fealty to him. And my job is not as important as my relationship with Jesus and my fealty to him. And some of you have been Christians a long time and you're used to that. Some of you uh, will run into that and think how crazy that sounds. That you actually have to choose between your family and Jesus. But you will, and you do, and Jesus has the prior commitment of our lives there. So it's when we're called to follow him. And ultimately, to follow Jesus means to follow him on the way to the cross. He said to his disciples later, uh, take up your cross and follow me. Because when he sends us into the world, he doesn't send us in to dominate the world. He sends us in to lay down our lives in self-sacrificial love. Um, yeah, not with swords loud clashing does the kingdom come, but with deeds of love and mercy. So, I don't know, some of you, I don't know where you come from tonight, some of you will be a little bit uh, more dismissive of the implications of the kingdom for here and now, like how involved we should be in trying to alleviate needs and push back against injustice and things now. Um, some of you will be dismissive of the supernatural parts of Christianity where you're like, can't we just try to love each other like Jesus said and not worry about all the repenting and being reconciled to God and death on the cross and those kind of things and... But the package includes all of that, right? The kingdom has come. The kingdom has come near. Martin Luther King, I'll always like to mention him because something good came out of Atlanta. Um, but he, uh, he had, you know, he's always you know, defined himself as a Christian minister. And his approach to things really reflects a pretty good grasp on a lot of these ideas that Jesus is mentioning at the beginning of his preaching, right? Um, the beauty latent in the world, um, he saw that human beings in the image of God were worth protecting, worth loving, worth defending, uh, that it was worth trying to remove the yoke of oppression from human beings next because human beings are beautiful creations of God, precious in his eyes. He saw that. Um, he wasn't an escapist. He didn't say, just hold on and soon we'll escape from this old bad world. Uh, things will be better by and by. But he said, no, we, we should enter in now and try to push back uh, to put on display Jesus' kingdom that is coming and spreading uh, by seeking justice and peace in the world now. Uh, he's thinking more garden than uh, the clouds of heaven by and by. Right? Um, he talked about the arc of History, bending towards justice. He was willing to be patient with a nonviolent approach uh, to injustice because he had hope that Jesus is really bringing his kingdom. Um, he didn't think he, we could get ourselves back to the garden. So he regularly preached Jesus Christ 
right? Because we can't fix ourselves. We can't eliminate what's broken with us. And when he had hope that justice would roll down like waters, it was the hope of the prophets, the prophet Amos in particular. Uh, And his hope for the justice rolling down like waters was his hope in the true king who has come, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.